This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to Plato's Cave. My name is Alex Heller Nicholas. Tonight I am joined with Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Hello. Hello, Alex. Hello, Alex. Suitably creepy introduction there. Joining Cerise, Emma and myself tonight in the cave is Comrade in Arms, Carl Chapman behind the desk and of course as usual the indispensable Faith Everard working hard pulling this all together for the benefit of those of you not able to tune in as we broadcast live into podcast form. Tonight we look at a film called Childhood of a Leader and new to home entertainment Jim Jarmusch's Patterson. But first up, we have an exciting one that feeds into our spooky introduction. Um, We have Get Out, the feature film debut, uh, directorial debut of Jordan Peele from comedy duo Key and Peele. Now, if you've managed to avoid the buzz for this film, you're in for possibly even more of a treat than those of you who have already heard about it. But either way, nothing will really prepare you for the quite extraordinary experience of watching this movie. Get Out is, on the surface, a pretty straightforward horror film about a young guy called Chris, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who finds that his girlfriend, played by Alison Williams from Girls, and her family have invited him to their country home so they can hypnotise him, separate his body from his soul, and sell the former to rich white people whose bodies are on their last legs, so to speak. Now, while this all sounds like pretty kind of straightforward horror terrain, Things get interesting when we take race into account. Chris is black and his girlfriend, her family and their customers are all white. A lot of critics have had a lot to say about this movie, particularly this aspect of it. What do we make of Get Out, team? Am Who's going to start? Oh, I, I, you I, was, are. Wait, I was being polite. I'm, I'm, I don't know why. I'm going st- to awesome. start with... I don't think I've done this before. I'm going to start with an immediate bong pack. <laughs> the, the, the bong is packed from the outset. Forget out, my goodness. No, you've packed a bong no, I've up never, front I've before, never, haven't you? I've never packed a bong that quickly for a film. Wow. L- listen back. We can listen back through the Triple R archives okay. and ever, ever hear if Physical I've done that challenge. so quickly. Off the bat, the bong is packed. Well, well, I've actually been trying to avoid, even though I've seen the movie now twice, I've tried to avoid reading your piece with our other lovely um, Jeez, alumnus. <laughs> no, because I didn't want you your influential piece to influence me tonight <laughs> and I'm just going to spout out what you and uh, and Josh. Josh Nelson thought of it So, because I know you've written quite a substantial piece about this it. This is a piece that Josh Nelson, who we all know and love and miss dearly, um, ex-Plato's Cave ex-Spelunker and I wrote for Overland uh, Literary Journal online recently. That's correct, that's correct. But um, Get Out, um, uh, first of all, it's got an Australian DOP, Toby Oliver. Let's pack a bong for him. So that's kind of... Uh, I actually worked on a film with Toby, so I'm going to... Was gonna, he, a, was I'm he a nice man? Sp- um, he was, a, he was he was quite a nice man, yes. He passed his girlfriend on my lounge room floor, so, you know. This is good content. How about that? Yeah. This is exclusive get out content. Usually, I bet you Jordan Peele doesn't know that. Nah. I bet Listen you Toby up, Oliver Peele. can't even remember that. It was about 25 years ago. <laughs> this <laughs> but, is hot stuff. This, this has taken a turn that I didn't expect. Well, you know, I thought I'd just come in with that because usually Thomas has the stories and I felt <laughs> that, um, you know, I'm going to have something. Alex, Alex has been thanked in the credits of Colossal. I've had Toby Oliver, Pashi's girlfriend, on my lounge room floor. There you go. And he shot Get Out. So what do we have to say about Get Out? <laughs> Cerise, the, uh, the pressure's on, my friend. Yeah, feeling it all. Um, well, yeah, this was a hoot. Um, it's, it's a smart film. Uh, the, it, 
Like so many current American releases, especially from the independent sector, it's extremely easy to read all manner of things into it post-Trump. Uh, I imagine this was made, uh, I don't know, how long ago? Was it during the, even the presidential campaign or was it in the can already before? All I was reading about him making a horror film beforehand, but I, I wasn't paying close attention to it, so I don't... Yeah. I, I, it certainly didn't just magically appear after Trump. How about uh, relative to the, the height of the Black Lives Matter um, movement, the hashtag, when did that hashtag go completely crazy? It would, so, it would certainly have to be alongside that one, would think. Yeah, I mean, this is um, definitely not a film that emerged in a vacuum. No, no. Uh, there is an awful lot of, um, I mean, fun had with the whole business of uh, that black folk in the States have a lot to fear of white folk especially those that might seem well-intentioned superficially. Um, you know, this whole film really is one big setup. really. That first hour is a, a grand setup for a, a really cruel joke and a killer punchline at the end. I, um, I, I had such a ball with, with this film. And uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to give away too much, but it goes into some very, very... Um, high concept territory in order to really probe this idea of that uh, the, the white and the black folk aren't necessarily going to always get along there because there's this history of, uh, well, let's say enslavement one to the other um, that has a legacy that is never going to be easily erased and uh, even even the most well-intentioned white folk might have hidden agendas uh, and possibly strange uh, mad science machinery locked away in their mansion in upstate, wherever it is. I mean, that was a very palatial residence in the Filmed middle. Filmed in Alabama. Yeah. Was that Just, Alabama? Um, if you Interestingly. Want, if you want a little bit more <laughs> bang for your racial politics buck. Yeah, yeah I wasn't quite sure where it was meant to be set. I don't think it said just where they were going. No, I don't it? think so. Or even did, which city they'd come from in the story. I did like that at one stage one of the characters counted uh, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, oh, yeah. three Mississippi. I felt that had to be an intentionally racial <laughs> <laughs> a racial jibe there in the oh, middle. I expect so. I mean, there's, there's full of them. Um, the, as soon as you start, you know, as soon as this awkward business of um, going to meet the parents happens on this this stately home and and um, garden, and all these guests start arriving, every little line of dialogue becomes so loaded, and we really feel for the protagonist who can't help but read. It's not even between the lines, really. It's all so so very loaded. It's it's almost it's barely innuendo, and and we're made to feel that. I think we're really as. A, I think presumably an intended large white, largely a white audience, we're made to feel uncomfortable. And I think that's really quite wonderful, not least because the payoff ultimately is so, so fantastic. Yeah, look, I, I feel very strongly, and, and this is something that Josh and I argue for, um, I, I mean, a lot, is, is that this film is so important. It's certainly not the first film to do it or the only film to do it, but it's the, the person that we subjectively align ourselves with is a black man, which in horror is not common. Not common. Um, it is, I mean, there are films and there are great films and, of course, I think possibly the most famous one is Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Is Ben in Night of the Living Dead. But I can count probably on two hands the, you know, there's the Embalmer, there's, um, I mean, Candyman is complicated, I think, yep. with its racial mm-hmm. politics. Um, it's a smart film too, It's actually, a really smart film. Mm-hmm. Ganger and Hess, you know, the, and Tales from the Hood has been getting a bit of love after the fame of this film. But there's not a lot of films. I mean, mm. normally, you know, there's an assumption that white audiences will align themselves with a, with a white character and this film totally subverts that, totally turns it on its head. And what Peel does so well is he really understands genre as a, as a tool to do something 
through metaphor, through through something that we know so well, you know, the mechanics of, of, of horror, the mechanics of genre, to tell us a story about the horror of having people control how you are represented. Mm. I mean, it's it's incredible, as you said, Cerise, it's incredibly intelligent, this film, what it's doing, but it does it through such a familiar, fun language. And I don't think that that can be underscored enough. This is really a horror comedy and, of course... Peel's background is, is you know, with Key and Peel. It's, it's comedy. This is funny. I don't funny. know anything about them. I, I wasn't mm. that familiar with it. Josh kind of gave me a crash course. Um, it's funny. They're funny. Mm. Um, and there's a, there's a conversation in this film, a phone call, where they talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it is just, I'm not sure if I will hear a funnier moment in a film this year. Like, it's an extraordinarily dark but really funny there is really funny parts of this film and it's i I think horror comedy is really hard to do because i find that they end up either not being scary or not being funny um and somehow i mean get 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 out should be applauded just for being a a, one of the rare horror comedy films that works let alone the amazing stuff that it does with its racial politics probably the some of the the funniest things i found were actually having um the the black actors playing white (laughs) <laughs> which was realised as when you see that, you realise, I mean, just looking at white through blackness is hilarious. You know, they just seem so awkward. And the whole film played out in that sort of the way of, you know, um, oh, yeah, Mike, well, I know, you know, I'm I'm not racist. My best friend's black kind of thing, you know, or that whole I'm not racist but. You this know. film really guns for, for lower L liberalism. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, oh, it's not absolutely. attacking. It's not attacking. So it's not attacking yeah. the outright. Not it's attacking the liberals. It's like you know that the, the the people that can cause harm and the are very often not the people that are just straight out, you know, cl- cl- you know, kind of clan hood wearing freaks. It's it's the people that say, oh no, we're with you. We're with you. Actually, no, that there's a danger that can be had from from there as yeah, well. And I think yeah. it's very articulate how this film does that through through genre. It felt really tonally very much like, um, because it's, it was great in terms of being um, uh, couched as a horror movie because I took someone with me who wasn't into horror movies and uh, really enjoyed it. But uh, it, it shows that how broad that label of horror can be because it's not, a, a, it's not an atmospheric horror movie. It doesn't play for creepiness in, the, uh, in atmospherics, okay? It is creepy just through the performances, but it's... It's not visually or aesthetically creepy. Um, so it it kind of plays tonally like I felt like the Cabin in the Woods or even surprisingly, um, uh, what was that Kevin Smith film? Tusk, for some reason. I think some people will take me to task on that. But I, I, did I think I like, might. I think oh, will you? <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be me. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be you. You know, I do like that film, and not many people do. I, I don't think this is a. I don't think that this is a spoiler. But there's a um a, a kind of abstract realm at place in this film mm. um, that comes up a lot in in you know reviews of it. So even if you haven't seen the film, you might have heard it. But there's a, a, a fear of being sent to a certain place. It's called the sunken place. I don't think that's a spoiler. That's not really giving no, anything away. It's, no, a, it's no. an abstract realm. But I, yeah. I actually think that the way that that's put together is hugely literary in terms of horror. It reminds me of um, very kind of 80s horror. Like it's got this great kind of blue neon hmm. in the dark thing. I mean, it was reminding me of just, again, probably equally random stuff as you. Not that yeah. that was random. Am I, am I, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you thought it out. Um, things oh. like fan, phantasm, you know, like that kind of real neon 80s kind of horror stuff. Like the, it just felt very 80s in its 
construction of horror. Whereas oh, conceptually, okay. I think there was a lot of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, in that, that idea of, and that sort of, sort of entrapment or enslavement, you might even say. And uh, Keep coming back to that word, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's going to loom large over any critique of this, <laughs> um, I would imagine. Otherwise, someone's kind of missing the point. Yep. Yeah. But it did, yeah, it, it seemed to me, though, that um, it, it really represented that kind of modern, um, the, the new modern lineage of horror where it's kind of presented, you know, in a way that's really approachable. That's not that that anyone who, uh, you know, in, in some ways it shouldn't have the horror, horror label on it. It should for people like us who appreciate that. But for everyone else, it's not so much the horror aspect that it's about. It's about taking a high concept and and using the horror devices to actually communicate it. And it is that kind of progression of the communication of the progression of uh, racial relations in America because it's hilarious, not hilarious that we that we looked at the 13, but it's um, this idea of that continuation of where rela- racial relations have mm, gone yep. in America yep. and how... How it's kind of been subverted and and hidden under this, you know, yeah, politically political correctness. Well, both such. both I think the thirteenth yeah. and Get Out say the same thing, which is yeah, lib- lowercase yeah. liberals aren't aren't our friends. You know, yeah, they're not they're not yeah, here to help yeah. us. They're telling us that they're here to help, but here's a here's a whole here's a whole bunch of ways that they're not helping. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, as, as often as the white savior trope in film is kind of obnoxious. I mean, this film even just suggests that any notion of white people being really all that interested in doing good anyway is perhaps um, worthy of a little interrogation uh-huh. and. You might like just to be a little dubious and 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 go with your gut feeling that there's reason to be suspicious of these seemingly nice white people. Even outside of all of the the racial stuff, and I don't think that you can separate it. I think you would have to have a pretty and and, and I think it's possible that you could just go and see this film as a fun thing. But I, I think that you would almost have to put an effort in to not try to to not realise that there's a perhaps a, a subtext to the text, yeah. Um, in terms of its racial politics, but if that's something that you're not really you know into and that's you're happy to leave that to the side it's still a kicker of a film exactly um, yeah. and what i love is yeah. how literate it is of that history as well so um the, the films that get mentioned a lot of course are the stepford wives you know these, these body swap films that go right back you know well, to the classic yeah. 30s but it reminded me so much of um i don't know if you guys have seen john frankenheimer's seconds the yes, rock hudson love film seconds. i love seconds. incredible film but there's another film that reminded me ever. of yeah well, it's, it's, it's extraordinary but society one, no no a 70s <laughs> exploitation film called the thing with two heads that is amazing uh, is that uh, black... ray Milland? uh yeah it is, yeah, it is yeah. Ray Milland. so a white racist has black head grafted onto his shoulders beside his racist white head. Hilarity is <laughs> you know, I, I, think, I think that's on YouTube. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a party. Yeah. Is, oh, it's a bonkers the, film. The great Ray Milan, too, yeah. in, the, yeah. in, the, in his last years. Yeah, this doing was all part these, of his these... real lost weekend. <laughs> 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 it really took a slide. But, yeah, that film, for all its obvious uh, schlockiness... Uh, it's not a million miles removed from this no, one. No, not at all. It's about um, ownership and yeah, dominance. Yeah, and there are and, certain yeah. tropes without giving too much away that, yeah, there's some. There's a lot of common ground between that um, little thought of 70s uh, schlockfest and this um, understandably highly acclaimed new yeah. horror comedy. I so hope that there's people listening who are rushing to YouTube now to see if they can find <laughs> yeah. this film. Even just the trailer, it is such a weird movie. Yeah, deeply, deeply weird. I, I, I have to say that uh, um, uh, Daniel Kalu- Kaluuya, 
I wanted I want to call him Kalua because it's like Kalua and milk, you know, the racial thing. It just goes so beautifully. Um, like like her having the, the, the fruit loops with uh, milk. I love know. that's one of my favorite yes. scenes. And um, the, the, the white the white girlfriend at one point in this movie sits down and she's eating fruit loops without milk, yeah. looking at topless like bodybuilder men while she's listening to I've had the time of my life on yeah. the body on the from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And I I just laughed so hard. It's like that is the whitest thing I have exactly. ever seen. With like, a beautiful crisp white shirt. And you could just imagine, <laughs> you can just imagine Jordan Peele sitting there like, wow, what's the whitest thing that a woman, like that a white woman can do? It's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like that's like, that's like iridescent white. Like, that's like Lillian Gish white. <laughs> he, ju- he just walked, well, um, D- Daniel, Chris, the character of Chris, uh, kind of uh wanders through the, the film in this state of uh, incredulousness, which I think is really nice because, as you said, you know, pitting the audience with this um, this black central character, which doesn't usually happen in horror, but also totally probably why I, I kid on Cabin in the Woods with this is because of um, Bradley Whitford and there's something, he plays the father in this, and there's something about Bradley Whitford that is just so marvellous being a West Wing fan and having watched um, all of those episodes, but also he just has this, somehow this quality that pervades the whole film. And uh, as that, the kind of jolly uh, neuroscientist in it or neurosurgeon with the um, Catherine Keener, who's just wonderful Shout out as for well. Catherine Keener. Love Catherine yeah. Keener. yeah, she's really, really solid in this film. And she, yeah, and she really pulls back in this film. She sort of sits behind him and she has that kind of, that glazed over look in her eyes. I don't know how she does it, but she does it so beautifully. She is the psychiatrist that you'd be scared to have, <laughs> scared to go to, and uh, for good reason. So, yeah, I thought the cast was really strong and those um, the, the woman who played Georgina, and I don't know her name, I should look it up because I thought she Betty was absolutely... Absolutely Betty captivating. Yeah, there was something about perfect. the way that they shot her as well, just slightly below and the, that scene where the tear rolls down her eye, that she was just so mesmerising, absolutely mesmerising. So I thought that, you know, not only did the it come together in the writing directing, but it was really, really solid ensemble team. Magic. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Let's talk about The Childhood of a Leader, another directorial debut, again by somebody we might be more familiar with in front of the camera than behind it, American actor Brady Corbett. You may be familiar with him, Troy McClure style, from Michael Haneke's remake of Funny Games, Force Majeure, Melancholia, uh, Clouds of Sils Maria, etc., etc. Now, to say that Childhood of a Leader is ambitious is putting it lightly. Inspired by Jean-Paul Sartre's short story of the same name and bits of John Fowle's 1965 novel The Magus Thrown In for Good Luck, also an amazing film of The Magus with Michael Caine, just such a shit show, it's so good. Um... The Childhood of a Leader follows the early years of a child who would, as the title may suggest, grow up to become a fascist leader, as you do. Living with his American parents, Prescott and his family have been sent to France for his father's work as a government official involved with the signing of the hugely important Treaty of Versailles. This was, of course, one of the most significant moments of World War I that saw the end of those hostilities, but led on to what some could call further complications with Germany that led to World War II. I think that's pretty fairly the idiot's guide to the Treaty of the Side, by the way. Just thought I'd throw that in. Um, This film is uh, structured around three 
sort of major tantrums, which I think sometimes this show coincidentally is tantra. Yeah, Blue? three tantra. <laughs> tantri. Um, and it has supporting roles from by Liam Cunningham as his father, uh, also from Dario Argento's The Card Player. This is my ongoing it's a terrible really? film. Yeah, though. it's a shocking film. Uh, He's a lot better. Yeah. Cunningham's better in this. But I just this He's is also my... from Game of Thrones. I know nobody would want us to say that What's here, it? but that's, <laughs> it, it, it yeah, is. but the card player. <laughs> Um, the beautiful Berenice Bejo plays his mother. Stacey Martin, my beloved Stacey Martin, plays his tutor Ada. And dual performances by Robert Pattinson. But the film is unarguably carried by just a killer performance by the young Tom Sweet, who plays Chess, uh, Prescott as a child. Ironically this, called Tom Sweet. Oh, boy, howdy. <laughs> this is a dense, complex film that garnered a number of awards at the Venice International Film Festival. But I think the big question is, does it get the all-important Plato's Cave gold logie for cinematic awesomeness? <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> With the, this, would you give it a this gold film, logie? This film star, <laughs> who's up against it? That's what <laughs> I want to know. Um, this film starts and it's like, wow. I mean, this start is probably one of the best credit sequences I've seen for ages. And it has something majorly to do with Scott Walker's music, which is just mind-blowing, I have to say. It's a, just a knockout. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just beautiful title font to everything. Just all the way. It's the, the, this um, stock footage from World War One setting setting the scene. Um, and I'm, I was excited. I was really excited from that point. And also the the synopsis is very exciting uh, for me. And I f- I feel that this film was beautifully looked beautiful as well but there's something about having such strong music that the film didn't quite live up to the music and uh, I felt that we had this discussion about things to come last week uh, about whether we would like it as much if Isabel Huppert wasn't in it and I feel like I wonder if I would like this film as much if Scott Walker's music wasn't in it. And our pets. Surely. And Arpats, yeah, yeah, Arpats was great. And I, I felt that pa- I could see... Pack a bong for Arpats. Pack a bong, bong for him. I mean, look, a great cast, and I'm the same with Stacey Martin. I mean, in Nymphomaniac, she was fantastic as well. She was just wonderful. And Tale of Tales she was in, which we, like, we really yeah. liked last year. Um, but um, I, I could see in um, Brady Cor- Corbett's direction, I think this was, yeah, very, very ambitious. And somehow he just didn't raise the tone of the film itself to meet the that urgency and ominousness of the, the music. Um, but um, I could see him, that he drew a lot from Haneke especially in his direction. And I did actually glimpse something that I believe he was he was pitching for like Barry Lyndon um, in this. And I could see that as well. Yeah, absolutely. He, I could see where he was going. It just didn't inch over it. The material was there. It could have had a whole lot of I felt this film could have had a whole lot of scenes or sequences where you went, how about that scene? How about that scene? Wasn't that scene great? But they weren't really. They were good, but they just didn't get over that edge. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. I think (laughs) that that, that opening music is amazing and it reminded me very particularly of a piece of music called Time Forward. I think the composer's name is Feridov, 
Guy Madden revived that music for his incredible short film Heart of the World. It has this insane driving rhythm. It's a classical piece, but it has you know, it has classical orchestration, but it's this real industrial rhythm. And uh, th- this had very much a similar vibe to it for me. And when I when something evokes Heart of the World for me, that's, you know, that is one of the most extraordinary short films. That's a feature film compressed into five minutes and it's incredible and beautiful and mad and funny. Whereas this, once the, that opening... Uh, the uh, overture. Um, I haven't actually seen a film which announces it's having an overture for quite a while. And it's tuning up. Yeah, I think it actually has Scott it Walker does. say, yeah. "Are you ready?" Or That's quite right. yeah, there's something, something like that. Yeah. yeah, and then it's extremely serene. The pace after that, it's a, you feel yeah, it's a real drop in energy, and yet. I still went with it for quite some time because that little kid is incredible. He's unbelievable. And, um, yeah, he he totally upstages everyone else whose performances. All the adults are quite mannered, uh, especially his parents are so stiff. And I get that's partly what they're supposed to be. Their roles in uh, society are stiff and defined and... um, and even though there's some duplicity in their in the way they're conducting themselves, um, you know, there's definitely hints of affairs on either side. Uh, they're so contained, and yet, yeah, just stiff. Stiff's the word that really uh, most uh, comes to mind with those two. But the kid is quite naturalistic. The lighting in the film's very naturalistic. There's a lot of there's, there's a couple of things there that seem to be. Um, battling against one another to try to take control of the sensibility of this film. The kids just um, just totally owns the film. It's I mean, worth I, seeing for that child. Yeah. Like, he's just you, incredible. Are, are we meant to feel that... Um, are we meant to not like him and feel that we don't understand how he became... Um, I think the film's at a remove. I think it's at a very yeah. conscious remove. Okay. Um, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think mm. that the film's asking us to look at this from a, yeah, from a position of distance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah. not like we're meant to be on anybody's side in particular. I mean, they're all ghastly, with yeah. Ex- yeah. perhaps exception. Okay, I kind of felt sorry for him. Yeah, or just indifferent, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I think you do. No, the I think that the child, the, you know, I think that the child, the film kind of does provoke you to have this kind of, ten, you know, kind of very, a lot of con- conflicted feelings towards the child, mm-hmm. but as you would to somebody else's child, not your own. At no point does he say, imagine if this was your child. You know, there's, no, there's none of that intimacy. It's a really, there's no intimacy to this film. I don't know what film could live up to this soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. um, I can't imagine a director who could make a film that could equal that. And even if they should, um, mm. I, for, for, I mean, it, it, the, yeah, the soundtrack and, and this child, I think, really steal the show. I really enjoyed this film. Um, I think that it's that classic thing with a de- with a debut feature in that there's too much going on, mm. um, and I think that that almost weakens a lot of things. I think that it just could have been shorter. Um, I think that there's perhaps a bit of um, reverence towards the source material that feels that it can justify it, sort of stretching it out and being this sort of you know you must respect it's Sartre, you know. Um, <laughs> but but I I mean it, the, the payoff I, I thought the payoff at the end of this film the last ten minutes um, it just blew me away. Um, I think uh, Robert Pattinson plays, as I said, two different roles in this film. Um, and boy, boy, howdy, does he play those roles. <laughs> I love how painterly this film is. Um, it's, really oh, it's a beautiful pa- looking it's film. It's incredible. Looking. And yeah. there are these strange moments of this really, really interesting cinematography where cameras float 
Um, it's it's filmed in a very kind of traditional way, but then then it just just completely goes off the, off the charts. You know, there's these amazing crane shots, and um, when there's these explosions, these tantrums, these moments, and I love how it's structured with these tantrums because they really are these explosive moments. I like that too. Um, but they just they're a little too far apart. It it almost feels well. It had a setup of explosive yeah, moments. It had to set up that music. Then you got the first tantrum, mm-hmm. and then it just quietens. <laughs> I, I do love how vague it is about the politics. I think that one of the, the main problems that it has in a way is that it doesn't never ever really resolve this stuff with the Treaty of Versailles, the broader, you know, context of the father's job. It never really resolves that with with this child becoming a fascist leader. Yeah. Um, it, there's always a bit of a gap between that. It's a little bit vague on, on causality. Mm, yeah. um, oh, very vague. You know, I and, it, and, it's, it, <laughs> and I, I think it gets away with that because it has this sort of quasi-arty going on it's like oh no we don't have to but at the same time it's like yeah but that would help me kind of get into the film a little bit more um but that being said i mean watching the film it's like oh is it hitler and oh is it there's a great peter bradshaw review where he goes through and he says no 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 it's um you know hitler mussolini stalin they were more lower class they didn't come from this wealth um he draws a parallel with oswald mosley which i thought was really interesting Uh, the british fascist yeah yeah and he's like he's actually you know if you're kind of looking through history you know who could this leader be this ambiguous leader mosley's probably the person that you could draw them apparently there's a a hint in the Um, film that actually tells you i i completely missed the hint whatever that was but i don't know whether anyone else picked it up but what i liked was that bradshaw said it's actually about american fascism they're an american family it's this sort of you know and i I really Mm. like and I, i could have done with a bit more of that, you know, a bit more... Du- maybe I'm just a dum-dum, but I could have done with a bit more of that direct. Well, there were some very familiar long bows being drawn here too in terms of certain things that might lead to psychopathy. Oh, Bedwetting yes. and being mistaken for the other gender. That's to right. Us, to, you know. And looking at nipples, I think, uh, is bad, yeah. apparently, from this yeah. film. Don't, yeah. do, don't do that because yeah. you might become a fascist. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that the takeaway message? Something like that. I'm already <laughs> crossed with myself for saying the other gender and resorting to some binary construct of gender, and that's very poor. But um, <laughs> equally... I'd, I'd I wish to retract something from my throwaway what? line about the man thing with two heads. Not the man with two heads. That's <laughs> yeah. another film, Steve Martin, isn't it? Uh, the, that's a man yeah. with two brains. Maybe we should just do two, whatever. One review at a with time. With a lovely, <laughs> with a lovely poem in it. Yeah. Anywho, speaking of poems. No. Anywho, yeah. But the, the, these things, these things that suggest in childhood, if a child wets their bed and uh, if there's confusion over gender identity, maybe they'll go on to become a fascist dictator. Uh, <laughs> we've heard this story time and time again. <laughs> Maybe in adolescence, there'll be a bad painter. Uh, perhaps they'll dabble yes. in veganism. <laughs> I hope to God somebody's just tuning into the show right now. <laughs> if, if this is you, we, are, we have been talking about the childhood of a leader, a film. There is context for this conversation. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So from the childhood of a leader's Robert Patterson to Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, the film's title refers both to its main character, played by Adam Driver, and the town of Patterson, New Jersey, where the film's action is set. And by action, I of course mean the term in the loosest possible way. This is, after all, a Jim Jarmusch film. Bus driver Patterson is a creature of habit. He goes to work, has his lunch, writes poetry, and walks Marvin, a dog belonging to his wife Laura, played by uh, Goshifte Ferraani. Oh, I'm sorry. Goshifte Farahani. That's how you say that name in a proper way. Goodness <laughs> me. 
Um, he walks his dog every night en route to his favourite bar. It's a beautiful bar. I just want to give props to the bar. I like the look of the bar. Without giving too much away, if you have not already seen this film, um, it played Miff last year and has had a limited cinema run before now being released on Blu-ray and DVD by Madman Entertainment. Patterson concerns what happens when routines are broken, when spanners are thrown into the works, and what we do when we lose things precious to us. Using actual poetry by New York school poet Ron Padgett um, and one poem read by a little girl written by Jarmusch himself, Patterson has met with strong critical praise, with both Jarmusch's direction and Driver's performance in particular credited for bringing the film to life. For everybody in the world, except for me, apparently, how did you guys go with Patterson? I think you need to start. Uh, we can't start with me venting spleen. Sure we can. Oh. Emma, sure we tell can. us about the dog. Tell us about Marvin. Well, Marvin's, well, controversy. Marvin's actually a girl. Marvin's Nellie. We're into that. Bitch. Gender fluidity. We can work. We're, yeah, we've, we've just been talking about that. Leads um, to fascism. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Nellie Ma- is Marvin a fascist. fascist. <laughs> Um, Nellie the dog actually is a, a, a celebrated dog performer. Um, she's a British bulldog, let's just say. You're using the present tense. Well, that's the, that's the sad. Oh, <laughs> a couple of months after the shooting was finished, uh, Nellie sadly passed away. The shooting of the film, you mean? The, sh- <laughs> the shooting of the dog. <laughs> this is getting bleak. <laughs> Bring back the funk. <laughs> Poor Nellie. Uh, Nellie did have cancer when they were making the film, but um, she they wanted Nellie. So they, they actually worked the filming around Nellie's cancer treatment. No wonder she was so pissed off in the film. It's all sort of... I know. She was a little bit snorty. I actually think that this film was... Um, she was chosen specifically for her snorts and, and, and growls. She had an interesting way of communicating. It's just... I like that we bring new angles to films that people think they've heard every angle on. Seriously, <laughs> would you like to add, to add to the strangeness? No. <laughs> not not would you like to say something, anything? Um, look, this film has had almost universal acclaim. Um, but how three-dimensional are all the characters discussed? Can we just say but that... Are they, are our, they ever in a Jamish film? Well, n- mm. yes and no. I mean, well, at least they're, they're kind of cool, usually, whatever that is. I felt, I felt that, that that Adam Driver's character as Patterson had a sense of having had almost uh, a total life experience before this film and that he was just going through the motions. He was almost going through the motions in terms of his relationship as well, that you felt that... Um, He'd given up, yet it kept on throwing out little things between the two of them that showed that they were simpatico and it was a really lovely little tender love affair. Things like when he wrote a poem and they put uh, as part of the 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 text, the textual look of the film, they actually bring the text of the poem up on the screens and they're very, very simple little poems about the minutiae of life. So he said, um, he was talking about the matches, matches being like a a megaphone and her saying, did you write about the matches being like a megaphone to show that they were both in sync? But almost, uh, uh, most of the time I actually felt that he was unhappy or an autopilot or just or just um just out of tune or does does that kind of did you get that feel through it I he's just know. going does through the like motions she through has the motions. all the creativity yeah. in a, a more appreciable visible sense she's constantly transforming their domestic environment 
though quite why and, and black and white everything yeah, was everything, black and white yeah and this, this whole idea of and the, the twins and and i kept on looking at it thinking what does this all mean and i actually think it didn't mean anything to be totally honest it, it it meant that I've wasted two hours of my life. I, saw, I love Jim Jarmusch. I think this is the first Jim Jarmusch film I really have not liked. I had, And I know that it's me. It's not you, Jim, it's me, because everybody that I've spoken to adores this film. I may have hostilities. Um, I spend the bulk of my days writing. So I'm, to be honest, like to transparency and the spirit of transparency, I think I have issues with any romantic representation of writers. It's like if you're not in your pajamas crying, covered in Pringles <laughs> dust, then you're not a real writer. So this kind of romance of the writer thing, Taking I think. Taking vitamin D oh tablets. God, and and yeah. if you have a job. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like... So I just, I just found, I mean, I just found this film so tedious and I, I genuinely, this is not, not made up. I found myself at one point, I caught myself hoping to, that I had a nosebleed so that I could leave the room. <laughs> it's like, I have to watch this film for the show and I just, and I just, maybe if I, my nose bled, then I've got a really valid reason just to walk out of the room. Oh, it no, just, I didn't feel strongly about it. Just it just drove me bizarre. I just thought it was so tedious. I just, and I think yeah. I, I tried to have rational adult, non-teenage thoughts about it because I figured that's why people try to listen to this show sometimes. <laughs> I think for me... Jarmusch's films are so poetic. They're all about poetry, especially if you go back to, you know, there's beautiful and amazing cameo in this film by Masatoshi Nagase, um, who's a Japanese poet who appears at the end of this poem. And, of course, he's from um, Mystery Train. You know, if we go back to... Oh, God, is he from Mystery Train? He's he's from... Way um, back when. Sion Sono, Suicide Club, and he's in Suzuki, who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Seijin Suzuki just passed away. He's in Pistol Opera as well. Yeah. Great Japanese actor. Mm. Um, I mean, Mystery Train, come on. But if you go back, you know, to those kind of early Jarmusch films, they're, they're so poetic. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I love. Even, you know, Only Lovers Left Alive, these are these dense tone poems, these mood poems. They just sweep you away in this sort of, they're just incredible. And I think, but by making a film explicitly about poetry about it just words, yeah. it just mm. it just completely exposed the apparatus for me mm. it just left me absolutely cold it's like oh jim jarmusch is making a film about poetry where there is literally poetry written on the screen and it was the opposite experience that i had watching something like only lovers left alive yeah um, or even something like coffee and cigarettes you know which is a kind of poem in its own you know these kind of old little cameo haikus almost you know like it just yeah, it infuriated me. I found it tedious and I, I prayed for death. <laughs> I didn't really feel that strongly either way, to I be am totally the only honest. person in the world that didn't like this film. I really have to underscore that. I, I didn't adore it, um, but I enjoyed it, you know. it was, But it wasn't something that I'd want to run back to or that I would, you know, as, as you were talking about, quote, as one of the great films in Jim Jarmusch's canon. I have a, a conflicted relationship with Jim Jarmusch. Sometimes I like his films, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I like half of them, sometimes I... Is it because he's hot? <laughs> He oh is a bit too cool. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's I'm very just jealous. Handsome. He's sort of got that Sons of Lee Marvin thing going on. I know. He's he's kind of like, uh, he's got a bit of um, a Nick Cave element going to him. No, no, I? no. Nick Cave has a bit of a Jim Jones oh, thing going on. Oh, like, okay. Correctly. There you They're go. All yeah. They're all Sons of Lee Marvin. They're all Sons of Lee Marvin. But, um, yeah, I, I found this, well, we've kind of had a, a, a few films, these things to come and, and certain women the other day, which were really... Um, films about sort of the banality of life in some ways and just stuff 
just stuff happening and it is a really uh it's a really tall order to try and engage people in 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 that sort of thing sometimes it it works sometimes it doesn't um and that's obviously subjective because this worked for everybody. Abs- absolutely. And, to- and we'll just, you know, Thomas isn't here, Thomas Caldwell, but he did absolutely love this he film. Will, so he's listening. He gl- will have me in a tea. headlock next week. Absolutely. Cerise, so try, to, try to protect me from Thomas. Say something to redeem uh, my nosebleed. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Look, Praying uh, for uh, death was uh, pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we didn't stipulate whose death, so that's... <laughs> yeah. This film is stolen by a not dog. Nelly's, not Nellie's. Uh, no. yeah. Well, yeah, the dog steals the show and the little girl. The adults um, are both a bit sort of, you know, just wishy-washy characters. One's wacky, the other's... Well, one's wacky in an extroverted way, one's wacky in an introverted way. And... Supposedly there's this chemistry between them, but I didn't exactly buy into it. But I still was somehow charmed by aspects of this. Uh, I wish I could find the minutiae of life as interesting as Adam Driver's bus driver does. Um, I don't. I find it tedious. (laughs) Strangely, a film about minutiae, much like, say, Seinfeld on television, which interrogated minutiae to a much more comical level. And, um, yeah, I can find it strangely diverting and a bit zen. I I could Mm. just... Hit a nice sort of um, low level uh, level of engagement with this this film and just let it wash over me. But still, came out of it not thinking, well, that was Dead Man because it wasn't. I mean, mm. for me, that was uh, Jarmusch's Zenith. That, that's this. That's the that's same for me. Really, and also, yeah, probably yeah. his most poetic film yeah, too. I mean, is, that yeah. film is, that is so poetry. it is poetry. Mm. It's yeah. just beautiful. Yeah, it's totally hypnotic and mesmerising. And it's this, actually uh, black and white rather than referencing black and white. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I have to say, though, that they do go and see The Island of Lost Souls in this film. Yeah, which that is was my favourite bit. Probably one of my... I thought so. But Such yeah, a wonderful film. <laughs> Such a wonderful film. Charles Lawton rules. That's all I can yeah, say. I pay that too. Yeah. Um, and the poem read by the little girl, ironically enough, you know, this is the one poem Jarmusch wrote for the film and that was the moment where the poetry actually was most sort of affecting because it just out of the, the, ba- out of the mouth of... Babes, Babes yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was quite lovely. But I, I don't have strong feelings about this film. I, I saw it in December. I remember enjoying it, but it hadn't really stuck with me and I didn't really want to watch it again just for tonight's show. I didn't want to take that bullet for the same team. <laughs> but I still thought it was a nice enough film, just uh, nothing really quite deserving of that level of acclaim it has had and it, it has had tons. Just so extraordinary much it critical support. Yeah, and acclaim, yeah. And it is, I, I could, it's not like I think everybody's wrong. I, I, I get it. Like, obviously, mm. I'm just, it's just a misfire. Like, obviously, something has just mm. really connected with people about this film that completely missed me by because I'm wearing pyjamas covered in (laughs) Pringle dust. dust. (laughs) Crying. The big question, though, I think this is a theme that's been running through um, a couple of shows. Would it have been better if Isabelle Huppert was in it? (laughs) I don't think there's any film that wouldn't be better if Isabelle... Although Patterson with a Scott Walker soundtrack, I would definitely... And Isabelle Huppert. (laughs) And maybe if Patterson had been set in Patterson Lakes. Oh, wow. Next level. Played by by Robert Patterson. We can keep going Oh god, <laughs> Adam Driver though. Can I, I look, Adam? We've got a little bit of a um, Elena Dunham link in this show. I mean, um, Alison Williams was in uh, in Get Out and also in Girls. And Alison Williams, yes, I got her name right. And um, Adam Driver. I think Girls was the first thing I saw Adam Driver in, and I'm not a fan of Girls 
at all, except I was a huge fan of his in that. And he's really one of the actors of the moment, I think. So we're going to wrap up tonight by saying it's all Lena Dunham's fault. We'll That's blame good. it on her. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I'm, I'm at home today. <laughs> Patterson is available on home entertainment through Madman Entertainment on DVD and Blu-ray. Childhood of a Leader is through IC slash OT Entertainment, playing exclusively at Acme from the 11th to the 16th and then again on the 19th of May. And Get Out is available to watch on wide release through Universal Pictures. That's the show for tonight. Join us next week when we'll welcome back Thomas Caudle, who may or may not garrote me for what I just said about Patterson, <laughs> for what I believe might be the first full cave in quite a while. Thanks to Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard, to Carl Chapman behind the desk, and to our podcast queen, Faith Everett. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.